Today is our second week in a little detour that we're doing from, uh, from our series in 1 Timothy. Uh, the plan is to get back to that next week. We'll resume with uh, chapter 4. But uh, 1 Timothy, if you remember, it's a, it's a letter from the Apostle Paul to a young pastor named Timothy, specifically on how to lead a church, a church that was in disarray. There was all sorts of, uh, of uh, disorder and, uh, and poor conduct from the leadership, from the members. There was false teaching. There was a lot that needed to be corrected. And we looked at chapters 1, 2, and 3, and in chapter 3, the Apostle Paul tells Timothy uh, how to look for good leaders, what to look for when appointing leaders in a church. Uh, And his, his emphasis is not on their gifting at all. He doesn't really mention that. He says that they have to be able to teach, but that's kind of it. Everything that he lists out in chapter 3 when looking for leaders of the ministry, whether it be overseers or deacons, everything that he lists out uh, has to do with faith and godly character. And that's, uh, that's really the prerequisite here. Ideally, every church ought to have that as the criteria for, uh, for what to, uh, to be looking out for when, when appointing an overseer or a deacon. Overseers uh, should be above reproach. That's kind of the, the big uh, encapsulating statement. Uh, deacons should serve Jesus well, gain a good standing for the gospel. Uh, but more often than we'd like to admit, churches appoint leaders who have disqualified themselves or were never qualified to begin with. And uh, I think this happens regardless of whether or not the church is, is big or small. But I imagine that in, in small churches, uh, one of the challenges is you need people to, to lead. You need to appoint someone and you don't have a large population to pull from. And so it's, it's not easy to, uh, to just pick someone who's qualified because not everyone's qualified. I think the church in Thessalonica was, was dealing with that, and that's why uh, Paul was saying to appoint some people, put them in charge, but he doesn't call them elders. In uh, big churches, you've got a different problem where the church is so big that it's hard to get to know who is qualified. It's hard to know who is a, a, a person of quality, a, of godliness, and, uh, and of faith. So whether it's a big, big church or a small church, it, it, you have your own unique challenges. And yet, uh, what, what's, what's kind of tragic is how giftedness and willingness become the prime requisites in choosing who's in charge. Those sound like very good things. If someone's good at their job and willing to do it, you think, well, that's, that's, the, that's the person we need. And yet, uh, when, we, when we look for that as our priority, we start to, to sideline faith and godly character. Does this person know the Lord? Has this person been tested? Has this person suffered well and shown that, uh, that even during trial and storm that uh, he or she would walk faithfully with Jesus? Before we were sent off to plant this church, I asked my boss, uh, Pastor James, uh, specifically, do you have any advice before we go and plant this church? Do you have any advice for me? Uh, anything that I, I need to know that, I, that, that, uh, that you want burned into my brain, like a single message. And uh, he did not hesitate. He didn't have to think about it for a long time. He answered right away. He said, be careful who you put in charge. Be careful who you put in charge. Don't, don't be in a rush to lay hands and appoint leaders. You have to be sure. And uh, he, he had an explanation for it. He did talk about how uh, if you appoint an unqualified leader, it's very hard to undo that without damaging the church. 
damaging the credibility of the leadership, uh, hurting people's feelings, causing division because people will side you know, out of sympathy with, uh, with, the, with the leader that's being displaced. And so he said, be careful who you put in charge. Don't be in a rush. Don't be hasty to lay hands. Well, last week, Patrick talked about why leaders fail. Why leaders fail. Uh, why it's so easy for someone in leadership to disqualify him or herself. And uh, we're, we're using the word fail instead of fall. You know, leaders fall, leaders fail. And, uh, and it, it's, it's a small but intentional uh, difference in, in, in the wording because leaders don't just fall. Falling sounds like it's an accident. I was walking and then I fell. It sounds like it was an accident and it happened to me. But, but if, you, if you watch what happens when, when leadership uh, falls apart, it's because there were decisions made. There was a path that was chosen. The, uh, the leader ends up where he was going, where he was choosing to go. And so it's not that he just fell. It's not just that a leader will fall, but it's that he failed it's that he made a choice, and it was the wrong choice. And he continued to make that choice and pursue that choice, and it was the wrong choice. And so we uh, are emphasizing semantically that it is a failure of leadership, not just an, not just an accident, but it's a failure. We, we, say, uh, we say very commonly in, in society that power corrupts. And uh, that's just as true in the church as it is anywhere else. It's an ever-present temptation, even for leaders of a church. Just because someone is a leader of a church does not mean that that leader is less prone to temptation. It doesn't mean that he is more resistant to sin. It doesn't mean that. And so you have to, uh, you have to stay on guard if you're in a position of influence in a ministry. Satan himself having been, uh, begun as a glorious angel of light, high in the court of heaven, became proud and self-glorifying, and that's how he, uh, he fell into sin. Right? It, can, it happened to him. It can happen to us too. Leaders can fall. Leaders can fail. Well, today we're going to use our time to, uh, to talk uh, the next step on this thing. It's not just about why leaders fail, as we covered last week, but what do you do when leaders fail. What happens then? And so if you're taking notes, uh, we're going we're gonna, to gonna go this way. We're going to start with at least uh, how do you know when a leader has failed? How do you know when a leader has failed? And then, and we'll, we'll spend a little bit of time there, and then the, the majority of our time we're going to talk about what to do when a leader has failed. What to do when a leader has failed. We'll go procedurally through that. And then finally, we'll, we'll kind of wrap it quickly with the how to restore a leader that has failed. How to restore a leader that has failed. Now, this should be somewhat procedural for you. Uh, this is one of those sermons that uh, is not going to be a, an expository uh, journey through a, a single passage. Um, this is going to be a, a kind of a step-by-step thing. It's a, a little alien for me. I don't, I don't normally do this, but uh, it, we felt like this was necessary to cover it and to make sure that it's, it's in our archives for our church, that you know exactly what to do if ever this situation uh, comes about. All right, well, how do you know when a leader has failed? How do you know? Uh, I, I know it feels like we've seen so many leaders in churches and ministries, uh, mess up and disqualify themselves. I'm not counting 
you know, stuff that happens in churches that are on the other side of the gospel. I'm not talking about Catholic priests. I'm not talking about that kind of stuff. I'm talking about specifically churches that belong to Jesus, churches that are, that are saved. They're, they're in the kingdom. Uh, and, and even then, we have known, uh, just in, in the past few years, We've heard about leaders that have messed up, have disqualified themselves. Uh, we, we hear about it either in ministries that we know people uh, are, are part of, or uh, it, it might be you know, churches that we're connected to, or it might even be just people on the news. And I don't want you to be deceived. There are thousands of Christian leaders, whether it be deacons or, or elders, overseers, who have never participated in anything disqualifying and scandalous. And I don't want you to think that the failure of a few should describe and attack the character of all those who serve the church rightly. But you do need to be able to notice when, a character, when a, a, the character of a leader is, uh, is astray, when a leader is no longer qualified to be a leader. So uh, a leader has failed, and you'll know a leader has failed, when he is no longer accurately described by 1 Timothy 3. Remember we looked at that? A couple of weeks ago, we looked at 1 Timothy 3. There was this big, long list of stuff uh, that, uh, that describes what an overseer should be. He should be above reproach, and it gives kind of all these descriptors on what it means to be above reproach, to be, to be blameless in every way. It doesn't mean he doesn't make mistakes. It doesn't mean he's perfect. But it does mean that that pattern of life does not describe him or define him. You know, even if he, he makes uh, occasional mistakes, that is not the thing that describes him as, as a person. Right, uh, a person might uh, might do something that, that's motivated by greed, but that uh, but is that person a greedy person as a as a defining whole? Right, that, that's that's a bigger question to ask. Not just did he do something that seems like it was motivated by greed, but is he a person that is greedy? So it's not so much the look at the incident, it's a look at the, the character. Now, uh, I'll put it up there, and, uh, and you'll see the, uh, the stuff that's in 1 Timothy 3, the, 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 lists, the, uh, the, the items on the list that the Apostle Paul gives, right? Uh, he should be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money, manages his own family well, not a recent convert, has a good reputation with outsiders. Now, these are the things that are in First Timothy 3, and it says that this is what should describe an overseer. This is an example to the rest of the church. This is not just for overseers to be described this way. All Christians should be described this way. And so if someone is going to lead the church, it's got to be someone that displays in his or her life what it looks like to follow Jesus, whether it be an overseer or a deacon. It's not just uh, the character description. But it's also the job description. Look at, uh, look at some of the stuff we talked about last week. Uh, the overseer must preach the word. That's in Acts chapter 6, verse 2 through 4. Uh, he has to lead the church, Hebrews 13, verse 17. Um, he has to live as a holy example, also in Hebrews 13, verse 7. Spiritually, he has to protect the flock. That's 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 4. He has to settle disputes within the, the congregation. That's Acts chapter 15, verses 1 to 2. Uh, and he, he has to discipline members, which is in 1 Thessalonians, uh, sorry, that's chapter 5. Actually, I'm going to get back to you on that. It's not chapter 5, um, but verses 12 to 13. You know what? Scavenger hunt. Find the verse later. Uh, he, has to, <laughs> he has to pray for the spiritually and physically weak. 
in the congregation. That's uh, James chapter 5, uh, verse 14. Well, think about that. Uh, those, are the, those are the requisites to be a leader in the church. That, that's the kind of character he has to have, and that's the job description. And the, the, the overseer or the, or the deacon has to fulfill the right character and be able to do the job. Now, given the, the description above, you should remove any leader who violates or fails to live up to these descriptions. So I'll just uh, put it up on the, on the board real fast. Um, if, if the leader has a habit of denying or justifying or covering up his sinfulness, or if he's cheating on his wife, or if he behaves or speaks in an extreme, shameful, or controversial manner, if he cannot make wise decisions despite conflicting emotions, if he is more concerned with the fear of man than the fear of God, if he is inhospitable, unwelcoming, rude, or belittling to people, if he cannot teach in a clear, biblical, and loving manner, if he is a drunkard, if he is physically or verbally violent, if he quarrels often, or if he quarrels uh, to win, or is stubborn, rather than just settling on truth, if he is greedy, if he doesn't meet the spiritual needs of his family, if he is a new believer, if he is regarded by the community as sinful, dangerous, irresponsible, or unkind, if he does not do his job responsibly, if he uses his authority to make church members do anything that happens to be sinful, dangerous, irresponsible, or unkind, or if he is not an example for members to imitate, in such a case, that leader needs to be confronted and removed. It is of utmost importance to regard your leaders as the example, not the exception. Right? That's, that's the biggest thing. Leaders ought to be the examples. They must be the examples not the exceptions. It's not that the rules don't apply to the leader because the leader is so gifted. The rules don't apply to the leader because we need him. The leader needs to be the example, not the exception. Basically, if your leader is engaging in any kind of behavior that's consistently eroding the reputation of Christ and the church, then he is failing. And given all that stuff, I want you to notice uh, what is not on the list, things that you should not criticize a leader for. I just, honestly, I went on Google and I just said, uh, uh, what to criticize, uh, what not to criticize your pastor about. And I, and I found this list, it was of interest to me uh, because it just felt so relevant. Don't criticize your leaders for things like matters of personal preference. For instance, let's pretend one of your overseers is a Spurs fan. That's shameful. But he's not failing. Much. Um, style of ministry. Our ministry, you know, we do, uh, we do loud music and sermons that are just the right length. And maybe you're, you're you know, you're used to uh, sermonettes. But if it's, uh, if it's not to your liking, that's okay. You know, we do loud music, long sermons, real fellowship, and a lot of food, a lot of boba, that kind of stuff. That's our style, okay? 
don't judge your leaders. Don't criticize your leaders for their hobbies. You know, your, your leaders might have weird hobbies. They might like things like Dungeons and Dragons or something weird and nerdy like that. That's okay. That's okay. Uh, I kid you not, this was on the list that I found. Don't criticize uh, your pastors for their clothing choices. I get, uh, I get a lot of flack for my clothes. I, I, I'm, you know, like, I'm used to it. Uh, people would oftentimes come up and, and ask me why I wear, wear what I wear, which is just, you know, black t-shirt and, and jeans. Um, but for some reason, you know, it would bother certain people that think that you have to dress up, dress nice, that kind of stuff. And, you know, it's, I just think it, you could come to church however you want to dress, and I should be the example, not the exception, Right? Come to church however you want to dress, whether it's overalls, chains, or feather earrings. You know, ne- never judge a man by the way that he dresses, or a woman. Uh, like, if a, if a guy comes to, to, to church, you know, in, in just shorts and no shirt or something, then, you know, you can look into it and just be like, do you not have a shirt? And then you can give him a shirt. But, uh, you know, like, for the most part, just if they dress within a certain realm of normality, it's, it's okay, right? Don't judge your leaders for their sense of humor, Please. There's a lot that, uh, that people get critical about their leaders for. Right? People make fun of their leaders or people get uh, dissatisfied with their leadership for, for really petty reasons. Reasons that, that the Lord would not be upset about. If God is not upset about that, you should not be upset about that. If, if the leader has an inappropriate sense of humor, a very crude, uh, crass kind of humor that that uh, you wouldn't want to, to wield with, you know, with Jesus, then yeah, okay, that's, that's different. That's a sin issue. But if it's just you, you, don't, you, know, you don't like the way that, uh, that he talks or the way that he eats or the way that he drives, or you know, if, you, if you just don't like small things about him that are preferential, those are things that you have to exercise grace because the church is filled with all sorts of different people and we're all meant to get along. Every tribe, every nation, every tongue. Right? We're all supposed to get along and, and to, to have peace and unity. And our priority has to be to protect that unity. That happens by just abandoning our preferences for that kind of stuff. Well, that's how you look for a leader that fails. Um, you, know, that's, you look for, uh, at the character. You look at, at whether or not he's able to do the job. That's, that's uh, a pretty easy stuff to understand. Now, what do you do when a leader fails? What do you do when a leader has failed? Uh, I'll show you a passage in 1 Timothy 5, which you ought to be at. And this is a spoiler alert because we're not even there yet in our 1 Timothy series. But uh, we'll just jump into uh, chapter 5, um, verse 19, in order to frame a certain understanding on the issue. 1 Timothy 5, 19 says, Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. I want you to see here that this is for uh, the protection of the leader, the elder, the leader, uh, against false claims, and it's also a firm accountability against the leader if he happens to be guilty. Really, the point isn't to punish anyone. It's, you know, that's not the, that's not the prime motive. Like, church discipline and, and confronting someone, there, there's a certain aspect of punishment to it, and you can use that word, fine. But the motive is not to satiate wrath. The motive is to protect the church, to correct the problem, and to uphold godliness. That's what you want to do. After all, 
God knows the situation and he's, he's, he's going to hold the, uh, the person accountable to. He will ultimately hold sinful leaders accountable. That's, that's really what he's going to do. And every leader should be held accountable for their actions. They're not exempt from church discipline. They're held to a stricter standard of it. Right? They're held to a higher judgment, a stricter judgment. Paul had to uh, confront the apostle Peter. He had, he had one apostle, Paul, had to confront another apostle, Peter, uh, for hypocrisy. In Galatians, Galatians chapter 2, verse 14, that resulted in the apostle Peter repenting. And then the whole church learning, and everybody liked that. If a leader is involved in criminal activity of any kind, uh, anyone who's aware of it should report it. Uh, you, there should be no cover-ups, no delays, anything like that. You know, just if you if you know there's criminal activity, justice needs to be sought out, right? You have to you have to have justice, and so there has to be legal action. But uh, but that's not again. That's not just to satisfy wrath. That's to maintain the godliness of the church, to protect the godliness of the church. Well, let's approach this piece by piece and consider what it means in terms of dealing with an unqualified leader, okay? What do you do when a leader has failed? And we'll start with number one. Now, I'll take you through five steps, I suppose, five steps, okay? Let's start with number one. If the leader turns out to be a false teacher, throw him out of the church, like instantly, automatically, without without hesitation if the leader turns out to be a false teacher and i don't mean false teacher on something that uh that's you know secondary i don't mean uh, that he you know if he disagrees with you on things like spiritual gifts or if he disagrees with you on the role of men and women if he even disagrees with you on the the nature of marriage or sexuality and gender if he disagrees with you on that kind of stuff, that's, that's, uh, those are secondary issues. Those don't define whether or not you're a Christian. If he, if he disagrees with you on the core gospel, on the central beliefs of the gospel, the primary doctrines, uh, if, if he happens to be teaching something other than what is the true gospel, throw him out. If someone calls himself a Christian and pretends to be one of us, that's what we're talking about. Not, you know, if, if someone is a, a Mormon, or a Jehovah's Witness, or a Catholic, at least they tell you that. And it's very, it's very understood. Oh, this person is Mormon. This person is a Jehovah's Witness. Uh, it, it's very understood where they are, that there is a theological distinction between that person and the church, right? But if someone comes and says, no, 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 I'm a Christian just like you. I'm a Christian. And then they start teaching something that is not the gospel. You must throw this person out of the church. You get that in, uh, I don't have the slide up, but in Galatians chapter 1, verse 6, and in verse 9, it says, if anyone preaches a different gospel, let him be accursed, which, which is really a way of saying, let him, let him be damned, let him burn in hell. That's, that's the strongest language that the apostle Paul could use. And then he repeats it again in verse 9 on purpose. He says, I'm going to say it again. If anyone preaches a different gospel then the saving gospel, let him be accursed, right? Anyone who, who calls himself a brother, calls himself a Christian uh, and does that. And the apostle Paul actually had to do that here in 1 Timothy in chapter 1. If you remember, he had to get rid of Alexander and Hymenaeus, these two guys that were teaching wrong gospel. He handed him over to Satan. He just threw him out. He says, You're, you speak the devil's uh, language, and so get out. Right? That's the devil's gospel that you're talking about get out. 
Now, you might not have the authority to throw out this leader, right? I mean, uh, if, if it's a leader and if, if, you're, if you're not in the same kind of a position, it would be difficult for you to throw this leader out. Uh, so you should find a way to make your concerns known respectfully to the church, tactfully, right? You, you can approach the other pastors or the other elders or the other overseers. You could write a letter or something like that. You can, you can just present your case, let the people know right away, but do it respectfully. Uh, and that should always, of course, happen uh, after you've actually had a talk with the person you're concerned about. If the church corrects you and says, no, 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 you, you don't have it right. This, this person isn't teaching what you think, the, uh, you think that he or she is teaching. You know, if, uh, if, if the church comes and corrects you and, and you get to understand it, then good. Everything works out and that's great. But if the church does nothing about this issue or fails to, to uh, discipline this leader, then you ought to peacefully leave. You should not stay at a church where the gospel is not being preached. You should not stay at a church where the gospel is contaminated. You should leave. Um, you should leave peacefully, quietly. Don't make a lot of noise about it. Don't try to divide everyone. Just quietly go. If people ask, you know, you can, you can tell them. But just be careful not to try to destroy that church. You could pray for that church, but you should leave. You should not take your family there. Uh, you should not expose your loved ones to a gospel that is contaminated. Now, hopefully, this is not a situation you'll ever have to deal with. And it's, 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 uh, it's less common than some of the other you know, ways that leaders can fail. Uh, heresy is not like the, the most popular way that a, a leader falls into, into uh, disqualification. So... What if it's not an issue of heresy? What if it's not an issue of a false gospel being taught? Uh, what do you do? Well, number two, you ignore baseless and unfounded accusations. You ignore baseless and, and unfounded accusations. Um, notice how, how Paul has said in 1 Timothy 5, he said, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Why does he say that? Well, the point is to make sure that we aren't believing accusations simply because someone said so. You have to have good reason, right? Our nature wants to assume guilt. These days, we have uh, more than just eyewitness testimony as evidence. We have more avenues to corroborate things. You know, you can find out uh, uh, from, from digital information and financial information, all that. You know, there's a lot of different ways that you can uh, confirm and so those, uh, those sources can be their own witnesses, in a sense. But you need, to have, uh, you need to have ample evidence to present your case. It can't just be like, I think this leader is, and then you, you fill that in with something disqualifying. It, it can't be that. It can't just be based on rumor. I see on the internet, uh, when a pastor is accused of something, you know, you, you see it on the news or you just see it on, uh, you know, someone posted it or something like that. Uh, and immediately people are commenting on this kind of stuff saying, uh, that guy's trash. You know, I hope he burns. You know, you, you hear all the condemnation going on uh, about such a person. And this is coming from people commenting that don't even know the person that's being criticized. They don't even know him or her. And I think about that, and I just think, like, that's how the world behaves. Why would believers act like that? Why would, would, would believers uh, think it's funny to laugh at the disgrace of someone who is representing Jesus in the world? Especially if the world uh, thought that this guy was, like, legit, 
And then he turns out to, to be disqualified, and the world laughs at Jesus for it. Why would that be funny to us? Like, why would that be something that, that we celebrate and, and, uh, and talk about flippantly? We have, to, we have to be very wise in how we handle this kind of a subject, to ignore baseless and unfounded accusations. People will assume uh, that a leader that's been accused, it, just, it doesn't even have to be a leader. When someone gets accused of something, when you hear some, you know, someone say, oh, I heard that this person did this. When you hear that, it's just so easy to assume that the person is guilty until proven innocent. And the, the Bible does not go about it that way. The Bible says you can't consider them guilty until they're proven so, right? Not in, unless you have corroborating ev- evidence that can be reasoned out and looked at, examined, and, and you can make a, a determined decision. Look at Proverbs 18.8. It uh, comments on human nature. It says, The words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels. They go down into the inner parts of the body. Right? That's, that's how we feel when we hear a rumor. That's how we, he- how we feel when we hear an accusation against someone. When we have a, a, a fascinating story to tell about how someone so great is someone so terrible. That's the best kind of story. And so the words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels. I don't know why that word morsel makes me uncomfortable, but the words of a whisperer, we like that, right? The way that that people talk and tear down those in high places, maybe it just makes us feel bigger. It makes us feel strong and powerful, maybe. Proverbs 18, uh, verse 17 says, the one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. Right? It's easy for us to believe whatever we hear to be as smart as the last thing you hear until someone comes and examines it, asks you about it. Were you there? How do you know? Can you prove it? And then it starts to fall apart. But how easy it is for us to think that the, the thing that we, that we heard, right when we hear it, the first thing we heard, we, we just assume it's right. Unless you have good, solid reasons to make a case, do not make official decisions based on gossip or rumor or opinion. Be very careful about that kind of stuff. You need to have a solid understanding of Scripture to know how and why this person is violating it. It has to be a violation of Scripture. It can't be a violation of your preferences. Right? It has to, it has to be something that, uh, that is a sin issue. And be careful, like, you know, make sure it's not just an act of immaturity or, or an act of, of your personal preference. But is this an issue where God says this leader should not be in charge? Well, let's pretend that it's not a false gospel issue. Let's pretend it's not heresy, right? Uh, And let's pretend that we do have solid reasons or we have several witnesses uh, that uh, that agree and we uh, we ought to do something about this leader. What do you do next? Well, number three, and this might sound cheap or cliche, but I feel like it's the most neglected point. You have to love that person. Notice this is not necessarily an action just yet, but you have to love this person. You have to check your heart. Okay, before you do something, start internally. You have to check your heart. You have to love this person. Uh, I think we've heard plenty of people complain about and criticize leadership because they're not doing what I want them to do. How fast a worshiper of Jesus becomes a worshiper of Satan when he or she weaponizes words against God's servants hatefully, mockingly. 
It's crazy how we assume the role of a judge and jury when we hear the slightest accusation. That's how the world acts, and, and that's not how we should be, right? That's, it, it, that's, uh, that ought to be the way that unbelievers deal with things. And yet God has made it clear that, that people can be accused and condemned falsely. A good example, Jesus, crucified, put to death, having committed no crime. So extending some grace and, and looking into the matter is, is a worthy pursuit for people in the church. Look at Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. It'll give you an insight into what should go on inside you. It says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, someone's caught in a pattern of sin, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, meaning you who aren't caught up in that same pattern of sin, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. In a spirit of gentleness. If you have credible reason to believe a leader needs to be corrected, you have to approach this person as you should with anyone, whether a leader or not. You should approach gently. Gently. Maybe the, the best way to, to think about the word gently is using the, the least amount of force possible. Using the least amount of force possible. Right? If, 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 you, if you hear that uh, a leader has a, a drinking problem, well, that needs to be confronted, right? But don't go with like 13 people, kick down the door and be like, hey, what's your problem? Right? You shouldn't be leading. That's, that's, that's not helping. Right? Go and sit down, talk to them, say, what's going on? You know, like, do you need help? That's what ought to happen. The hope is to restore, right? It's, all, it's, always, it's, it's, it's always to get this person back on track with Jesus, to, uh, to get them to healing, the, the point is not to satiate your wrath. It's not to punish in that way, right? That it, it can't come from hate. It can't come from that. It can't even come from being emotionally neutral. If you're emotionally neutral about the situation and you don't love this person, you're still disqualified from going and, and dealing with it, right? The, uh, you have to love the person you're going to confront because the way that you confront the person has to be lovingly. You can't lovingly confront a person if you don't love the person. You simply can. The honest proof of that, look, if you're, if you're not praying for the person's healing, you don't care. Or at least you're not proceeding in faith. You're relying on your flesh. You're not asking for God's strength. You're not asking for God's help. You're not asking for God to, uh, to soften this person's heart. You're putting your faith in your words, your argument, your logic, your evidence, whatever it is that you, you're coming up with. Always try to keep a humble heart in how you deal with this. Right, you got to ask yourself, is, is your life uh, similar? Do you deal with, uh, with the same sin or do you struggle with sin just like this guy does? If you do, if you know what it's like to struggle with sin and it's hard to, to overcome it, then maybe you won't come so hard. Maybe you won't come with, uh, you know, in, in full force if it doesn't need full force. If you're guilty in the same way, you certainly can't speak as if you're better or higher, or, you know, blameless. Look at Romans chapter 2, verse 1. The Apostle Paul says, for in passing judgment on one another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things, right? And he says, you condemn yourself with that. You, you might be trying to condemn someone else, but you have successfully condemned yourself when you're, when you're guilty of the same things and you come in uh, without humility. 
I can't stress it enough. You've got to check your heart on this. It's easy to just throw names and, and uh, mock and ridicule fallen leaders. And it's very easy to do that when that leader is not around. It's very, very easy to do that uh, when, when you're in the safety of just you and your friends. And you get to say whatever you want. That is the devil's game. You are celebrating someone else's disgrace toward Jesus because you think it's funny or it makes you feel good to say that kind of stuff. Some people in the church think it's their mission to keep the pastor in check, to play devil's advocate, to be the permission giver for church leadership ideas. You know, like, uh, okay, I'm okay with that, I guess. You know, to start telling people, yeah, I guess it's okay, and to be the permission giver. Just be careful, you know. So your pastor irritates you, maybe. One of your leaders irritates you, fine. You know, maybe uh, the preacher's sermons aren't great. Maybe the, the leader's personality is a little hard to relate to. Uh, maybe you think that uh, this person made a dumb decision and you didn't agree with it. Is he sinning? Or does this come down to your personal preference? Because I tell you the truth, criticism is not a spiritual gift. If anything, it's a spiritual curse. Being good at criticizing, being critical, being negative in that way is not a gift. That's not discernment, right? Discernment can weigh good and bad and can, uh, can bring out the best decision. Criticism is just good at tearing people down. That's not good. If you are better at criticizing leadership than you are at displaying leadership in your faith and in your godliness, in your speech and in your conduct, in your grace and in your charity toward one another, if you're better at criticizing than you are at those things, then you are a tool for Satan, not for the Lord. You have to watch your heart. Anytime your aim is against another believer, whether it's a leader or not. Anytime your aim is against another believer, you aim yourself at someone that God is saying, is my son or my daughter? Where God looks upon that person, says, this is my son, this is my daughter, and you are aiming yourself at that person, and you're doing that in front of him. So it's best to know if your heart before the Lord is aimed in hatred or is aimed in love. Saying, I... I need to do something about this, and I love this person, and I want this person to find healing. I want this person to get back on the right track. I want the best for this person. That has to be in place first. Once you have that, then, number four, confront and rebuke the person. You have to confront and rebuke the person. At no point does Scripture ever say, don't do it if it's awkward. Don't do it if you feel like it's going gonna, it's gonna to damage your relationship from now on, right? The, the Bible doesn't tell you to try to predict the future on whether or not you'll still be friends. If the person's in sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently, right? The most well-known passage on rebuking someone is from Jesus uh, speaking in Matthew chapter 18. I'll read it to you. Matthew chapter 18, verse uh, 15. It says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. And notice here, by the way, it says, if he sins against you, right? So this, you should go if you are the, uh, the, 
the one that's damaged by this, okay? Uh, if your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault. That's the best person to go and deal with this. The, you know, not, not just if you, if you saw it happen, but hopefully the one that, that was hurt can go. If that person doesn't go, then, then maybe you've got to get involved. Fine. But you have to see the heart here, okay? The goal, look at this. Uh, if he listens to you, you've gained your brother, right? It's just between you, you and that person. And if he listens, great. Problem solved. End of the matter, right? Because that was the hope, to bring that sinning brother to repentance so that he's back. You've gained him back. You know, he's in stride with the Lord again and everything's good. That's the point of confronting and rebuking anyone, right? It's not to punish for the past. It's to point him to the right future, a future of godliness. That, that's where you want to get him. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother, verse 16. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses, right? That means... Like, you have to go and, and show, show your case. For them, it was just eyewitnesses. That's all they had. You know, us, we, you got text messages, emails, you, whatever. You know, you can take friends. You can, there, there are a lot of different ways. There's recordings, you know, video. I, I saw you do this, you know. And, but you can go and you can make your case. And you could say, hey, this, I know this is what you're into. And we got to do something about it. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to, to them, the witnesses, tell it to the church which means that the church now has to officially do something. The church has to alert the other members. The church has to make some kind of, uh, of uh, an announcement, I suppose, to the other members of the church to protect the flock and say, this is a member that is unrepentant in sin, and uh, we've, we've done everything we can to, to alert this person, and the person is willfully, knowingly remaining unrepentant. The church has to do something about it. And then it says, if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. That's, you know, to the original Jewish audience, that's the way of saying that he's, a, he's an unbeliever, an outsider. Uh, and in a sense, you can even think of it as a, as a traitor, someone who uh, was supposed to act a certain way and then chose not to. But you need to see that this scales up step by step, right? You use the least amount of force necessary. First, it's just you going to confront this person. If he doesn't listen, then you, you bring like two or three others. If he doesn't listen, then the whole church needs to know. You tell the church. And the leadership has to get involved. If he doesn't listen to the, the church, then you treat him as an unbeliever. Unbelievers, by the way, they can still come to church. This, by the way, this is a word for a, a word that we commonly use for that, or what you've heard is uh, ex, excommunication, right? That's what that means. You just someone who called himself a believer and was treated as a believer. Now you say that's that's not part of the body. He's not part of our community. So excommunication. He's outside the community, right? Now he can still come to church because unbelievers are allowed to come to church. Um, he can still be your friend. Unbelievers are allowed to be your friends, but unbelievers cannot be members of the church body. Unbelievers cannot be serving in the church body. They certainly cannot be leading in the church body. Unbelievers can't be regarded as though they're saved, as though they belong to Jesus. They can't be regarded that you can't even, you shouldn't even ask an unbeliever to pray before you eat a meal, because what does that do? Not until this person demonstrates repentance and faith 
Well, let's say you, uh, you've confronted the leader and the leader has repented. Because if the leader doesn't repent and, you, know, and you, you, you go with everything you can, scaling it up, using the least amount of force necessary, but doing everything you can, and eventually you're, 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 you're moving with the whole church trying to confront this leader and stuff. And if he doesn't repent, you, you remove him and you take him off leadership. That's it. That's the end of the deal. But if the leader does repent, now what? Number five, you forgive that person. You forgive that person. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, listen to how the Apostle Paul tells us to conduct ourselves in our hearts, right? He says, put on then as God's chosen ones, uh, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has complaint against another, forgiving each other. Now watch this. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And just so you know, you really ought to forgive people regardless of if they repent, right? Forgive as in you no longer have wrath against them. Yes, you seek justice. Justice needs to be done if there was some, something criminal, etc. But it's, uh, it's not motivated by hate, but whether or not they, they repent, uh, you ought to forgive them in your heart. There, would, there ought not to be a, a, a wrath, a hatred, a, a vengefulness. You should seek justice, but you should not seek vengeance. You should hope instead for their salvation and their sanctification, not for their harm, not, their, not for their humiliation, not for their destruction. Hope for their salvation, hope for their sanctification, right? Their, their transformation into holiness. But especially if a fallen leader repents, restore that person to fellowship, Restore that person to fellowship. That means treat him as a brother in Christ because that's what he is. Right? If he repents, he's, he's proven that, yes, he sinned. He, he's confessed that. He re- repented of it. And so treat him as a brother because all of us were sinners and all of us repented and placed our trust in Jesus and were forgiven and Jesus accepted us. And so when someone does that, you bring them on board. You've won them back. Right? The grace of God, the blood of Christ, these are what let us be part of the fellowship of the Spirit. That's what happens. So, so don't start thinking, oh, you know, he's a worse sinner than I am. You know, so he shouldn't be here. Right? That, that kind of thinking, that, that's the voice of an accuser like Satan. Right? He's a bigger sinner than me. And you start setting yourself as a standard. If someone's as sinful as me, it's acceptable. If someone's less than me, it's good. If it's more than me, it's, it's, then it's not okay. Don't become the standard. You're not the standard. If the leader has sinned against you, specifically you, if the leader has sinned against you, you might need a lot of help in forgiving him. You might need a lot of people praying with you and praying for you and helping you get to this point. In my years as a pastor, I think I've known, well, the number doesn't matter, but it's a lot. It's high in the double digits of people uh, who have suffered some grievance because of church leadership. And sometimes it uh, it was so grievous that it turned into some kind of an abuse. I've seen physical abuse from leaders. I've seen sexual abuse from leaders. 
I've seen spiritual abuse from leaders, which is an odd one to try to detect. You know, when they're trying to use their authority to make you into their servant instead of a servant of the Lord. I've, I've seen it happen. I, I've seen how it wrecks the person that it hits. And it does this long-term damage. And I know that forgiving someone for that is not necessarily the flip of a switch. You know, to say, forgive him. It's not that simple. It's very easy to say. It's very difficult to do because it's not always instantaneous. You have to recondition your heart. If your heart has been wounded and is bleeding, it's difficult to just move it into, into a state of, of releasing all your, your bitter feelings, your hurt feelings about it. That It takes time to get there. And so we have to at least be honest about that. And say that this is something that we need to constantly be talking about, praying through, and being prayed over. Right? You need to get other people in on it. You need to get the church in on it. People that you trust. People that love you. Get a lot of people in on it. People who will go the distance with you. And say, I'm with you. If it's going to take the next five years of us talking about this and hear, me hearing about it and just counseling you through it, I'm with you. I'm walking with you through this. If that's what it takes, that's what it takes. Trauma doesn't heal from a single conversation where you tell someone, oh, you have to forgive them. I don't want I, I to make it sound so cheap and easy. If the leader has sinned against you, you might need a lot of help in this. Talk to other leaders that you do trust, that you, that you do rely on. Let them pray over you. Let them counsel you. Let them, let them be there and, and walk you through it. Well, uh, take all that in and... And that's what you do when a leader fails. You throw out the false teacher. You, you uh, ignore the baseless, unfounded accusations. You check your heart. Then you confront that person, rebuke that person, and then you forgive that person. Now, how do you restore a leader that has failed? How do you do it? Let's pretend you, you walk through all of that and everything works out well and you've forgiven the person and the, you know, the, that, that leader has repented and all that stuff. What do you do now? Right? How do you restore the, uh, a leader that's failed? And restoration, by the way, um, there are different ways to use that word. Now, uh, restoration is different from forgiveness. Right? Forgiveness means you, you let go of all your, your anger and, and bitterness and, and hate toward this person. Okay? Uh, so when a person is forgiven, um, he ought to be restored to fellowship, meaning he's brought back in, treated like a believer, all that stuff. Okay? Uh, because a, a person is definitely forgiven of his sins if he places his faith in Jesus. And so you, you have to treat him as a Christian, a follower of Jesus. You have to do that. But when I'm talking about restoration right now, when I say how to restore a leader that has failed, restoration of a church leader, uh, I'm using that term to talk about putting that leader back in the leadership position. Do you restore him to his leadership position? Is that what you do? Should that happen? Because forgiveness doesn't automatically restore former status. It shouldn't anyway. A drunk driver can be forgiven. But the car that he wrecked stays wrecked. Right? The damage that he's done oftentimes stays. So even though he's forgiven, spiritually relationships are mended and stuff, that doesn't mean that the damage went away. A man who abused his wife and children... There's long-term residual damage from that. Even if he apologizes, they forgive him. That doesn't mean that they don't have issues, anxiety, trust problems, all that kind of stuff that might be plaguing them. If someone is, an, uh, is 
guilty of embezzling. He can be forgiven, but there, even legally, there's no bank that's going to hire this person. Right? Can, can he be restored to working in a place where he can embezzle again? A pedophile can be forgiven, but would you restore him to working with children again? Would you have this person babysit your child? So forgiveness isn't the same thing as restoration. Do you restore a leader? Should you restore a leader? Is that okay? And it's a hard decision since leaders are to be above reproach. Isn't that the, the, the encapsulating term? The overseer should be above reproach. And so should a deacon. The leader of the church should be above reproach. Do you restore someone who used to abuse his wife and children? Do you? And it's, it's weird because if we say yes, you should restore any leader that repents. At that point then, it makes it sound like above reproach doesn't mean anything. You know, this, uh, this leader had a major addiction problem, gambling problem, uh, drug problem. This leader had a, 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 a problem of abusing his family. This, this, this leader had all sorts of issues where he was covering up uh, a financial scandal and all that kind of stuff. And you say that, and then he goes, you repented. Ah, so we restore you to leadership. And you kind of go, well, what does above reproach mean then? Right? He's not doing it right now in this moment. Fine. But he did do it back then. And so is he above reproach? So if we say, yes, you should restore leaders, it really undermines and I guess it almost ignores that idea that a leader needs to be above reproach. But then if we say, no, a leader should not be restored, you run into other problems because how does the church's forgiveness imitate the forgiveness of Christ? Has Christ ever, has Jesus ever forgiven and restored a leader? I think of Simon Peter. Well, did Simon Peter do something awful? Yes. He denied knowing Jesus three times, blatantly. He was even warned by Jesus, hey, you're going to deny knowing me. And he's like, no, I'm not. I, I would rather die. And then three times he was asked, hey, aren't you the, the, that, that Galilean guy that walks around with Jesus? And he's like, no, I don't know the man. I don't know the man. And then he curses. And he says, you know, may a thousand frogs jump on me and die. I don't know the man. Right? He's just, he, he flat out denies Jesus. That's apostasy. I don't know if, if there's a, a sin that's worse than that in terms of, of how your, your qualifications for leadership, you know? Uh, if... If someone was apostate, it, let's compare an adulterer and apostate. Which one do you think is more qualified to teach about Jesus? I, I think neither of them because they're both not above reproach. But if someone denied Jesus, can you put him in charge of teaching about Jesus? Right? That, that, just, that seems like that would be the, uh, the more relevant crime. And yet Jesus comes to Simon Peter knowing that, that Peter's uh, done this and denied Jesus right there when Jesus is being, uh, being in court and everyone's uh, getting on him and, and mocking him and putting false witnesses against him and stuff. He's being condemned and, and Peter just decides to protect himself instead of the Lord. And he just kind of walks away from the whole thing, lets Jesus die. Well, Jesus confronts him in, in uh, John chapter 21. 
He confronts him and he restores him. He just asks him, do you love me? Do, do you really love me? And Peter answers, I love you. You know I love you. And he asks him three times and he keeps telling Peter, feed my sheep, take care of my lambs, feed, feed my lambs. Take care of them. And he's not talking about literal sheep. Jesus did not have literal sheep. He's talking about the church. So it's a hard decision. You know, what do you do? It's, it's, um, there, I mean, there are cases where you have to ask, do we restore this leader? And what makes it hard is maybe the sin that you have in mind, the thing that, that uh, disqualifies this leader. What if that sin... Uh, is not a current ongoing sin issue, but is from, from far away in the leader's past. For instance, um, uh, what about a pastor who had a, a year-long bout with alcoholism and addiction 30 years ago? He was in leadership, and he had a bout with, uh, he was a drunkard. He had a bout with alcoholism and addiction and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and that happened 30 years ago. And ever since then, he repented. And for the past 30 years, he has been leading a godly, upright, righteous, blameless life. Can you restore this person to leadership? Or do you go, uh-uh, because remember that? What do you do in that case? Is he above reproach? By the way, I'm not talking about anything that, that happened before the person became a Christian, right? Everybody was a sinner before you became a Christian, right? When you became a Christian, now you're called a saint. You're not called a sinner, you're called a, a saint, a holy one, right? Uh, the Apostle Paul, for instance, was a murderer, right? He went around killing a bunch of Christians, and then Jesus didn't hold that against him and say, that disqualifies you from leadership. When, when the Apostle Paul came to, to salvation, Jesus uh, trained him and, and you know, and tutored him, discipled him, and then put him into leadership. He didn't hold the, the past against him from pre-salvation. But what do you do with leaders that, uh, uh, that made mistakes way back in the past? What do you do with a leader that had a one-night stand and then resigned from his leadership position out of a guilty conscience, said, like, I, you know, I, I should not be here. Uh, I messed up. And then he never divorced his wife, but instead uh, was working to rebuild that marriage with his wife. And that's been going on for the last seven years. And everything's been great. What do you do? Are you allowed to restore that leader? What, what if an overseer's uh, children are not believers? What do you do in that case? You know, let's say the children aren't rebellious or anything. They're not like, you know, they're not running around uh, breaking things and committing crimes and stuff. They're, they're not rebellious. They have a very loving relationship with their parents. They just don't believe in Jesus. Does that disqualify the leader? And do you say, well, he hasn't managed his uh, household well, his children are not submissive to him. Is it, would you say that? How long does a disqualification last? There's no hard and fast rule to any of these things, you know. These are just things that complicate the matter, and there isn't a verse that just solves it for us. And so I just look at how Jesus restored Peter, and, you know, that tells me that restoration can happen that Jesus believes you can restore a leader. Uh, how does that happen? I, I don't know. Denying that you, you knew Jesus, that seems like that should disqualify someone from church leadership immediately. And, and yet he, Peter was restored. But when Peter was restored, a couple things were very apparent. First, Peter was, was certainly repentant. Sincerely, he was repentant. Like his, his heart 
was messed up the moment he sinned, right? He heard a rooster crow, and he's like, Jesus said, I would do this right before a rooster crowed. And, and he freaked out, and he broke down, and he, he, he knew he screwed up, and he was hating himself for it. And he had repented, and he was praying over it. And he's, you know, when, when Jesus uh, fortunately didn't stay dead, but on the third day he came back to life and stuff, uh, imagine the joy in Peter's heart and how much he wanted to come back and say, I messed up. I messed up. I was, I was the leader. I was the guy in charge when you went away. I was in charge of the other 11 apostles, and I messed up. I screwed up big time. How much he wanted to, uh, to deal with that. How much he, his heart was wrenched in that. There was no question about his repentance. You can totally see it from the letters he wrote, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, and how much maturity comes out and how he writes about every mistake he's ever made. He doesn't mention them, but in his character and what he tells the church to do, you can see that he learned from every moment that he screwed up. So you know that Peter was certainly repentant. The other thing that, that becomes very apparent is that there was good reason to be absolutely convinced that he would never fall into that again. That he would never fall into that sin again. No one was like, wait a minute, Peter's going to deny Jesus again. He's going to get scared again. No. They knew. Peter was all in. And he was. He ended up being crucified for the Lord. Never gave up. His last words, hanging on a cross, well, he, he... Historically, what we have written down about him is that he requested to be crucified upside down because he didn't consider himself worthy to be crucified like Jesus. And his last words was just, remember the Lord. Jesus believed in, in restoring people, maybe because he, he believes in restoring leaders that are truly repentant. And you, have, you need time to figure that out. You need time to see that and see the leader tested. And you need time to know that this leader is not going to fall into that same pattern again. And when you have good leadership in the church that's, that comes around that and does everything they can to be convinced beyond any reasonable doubt that this is true of the leader, I think that there is no verse that prohibits restoring leaders. There is evidence that Jesus has restored a leader. And so a church ought to be able to restore a leader when they're convinced of those two things. Church leadership is a bigger deal in the Bible than it is in churches today. It's easy to be in a, be in a church and, and climb to leadership in, in so many of the churches that, that we see. No training necessary, no theology uh, necessary, no nothing. And that's not how it should be. If a church has good leaders who sincerely and prayerfully believe that a fallen leader should be restored because there's ample evidence of true repentance and transformation, then with a clear conscience before God, let them make that call and then walk with them in it. If the church leaders believe that the one that failed is once again the right person to help lead the church to lead the members of the church in faith and godliness and to lead by the example of his life, not just the greatness of his gifting, then maybe there's something to be considered there. I know that's a lot of talk about when leaders fail, 
So let's just kind of end with this. Don't let it get to that point. Don't wait until the point where leaders fail. Right? You, you as we as a church, all of us, not, not you, all of us, we, as a church, we got to do whatever we can to take care of our leaders. Right? I, and I know it sounds backwards. It's, isn't, isn't it that the leaders are supposed to take care of the church? Yes. But the church is supposed to take care of its leaders too. That's biblical. You, you got to know that, right? Galatians 6.6 6 says, share in all good things with those who teach you the word. You got to share in all good things with, with those who teach you the word. First Thessalonians 5, uh, Ephesians 6. How many times is the Paul, the apostle Paul, he was an apostle. He was, he was the highest kind of leader there was other than Jesus, right? But the apostle Paul, how many times is he, he's constantly asking the church, pray for me, help me. Thank you for encouraging me. Send me this person. Assist me with this, right? Let me take a collection and help me out with this. How many times does he need help? He needs help. And he's an apostle. He doesn't walk around with just magic powers and just do everything for you. If an apostle needs that, then certainly prophets need that, and then certainly evangelists need that, and certainly pastor teachers need that. Certainly overseers and deacons need your help to be praying for them and supporting them walking with them so that it does not get to the point where leaders fail. Keep them accountable, accountable, watch over them, you know, speak with them when you, when you see something uh, that, that seems like it's going to be a problem, catch it early, point them in the right direction. Knowing the problems that your leaders go through, knowing the temptations that they suffer, the stress that they endure, we should be praying for our leaders, asking God to strengthen them, protect them, encourage them, all that kind of stuff. And I, you know, I, I know it sounds like I'm just asking all of you to help me. You know, I get it. Uh, and I am. I think every leader needs you to ask God to help this leader or else you're just trusting in the leader's flesh. You need the Holy Spirit working through this leader. Pray for him. Pray for her. If a leader falls off track, if any of the overseers or deacons goes the wrong way, maybe it'll take a few of you, maybe it'll take a lot of you. Get the leader back on track can't just power through this without God's strength, right? The, the leaders can't protect and lead the church without God's help. And God's help doesn't come if God's people don't pray. So pray for your leaders. Ask God to help them, protect them, pre pre prevent them from failing, prevent them from falling. And if tragically, if for some reason it happens that a leader at your church fails then hope and pray that restoration is the eventual outcome for that leader. Hope that he is confronted and corrected. Pray that he repents and is restored. This is God's will. If you believe it, say amen. Let's pray. Lord, we deal with a dark subject. 
The reality is that church leadership is not perfect and more often than we'd like to admit makes mistakes and at times disqualifies oneself. Many of us have seen that happen. Many of us were eyewitnesses of it, maybe at a church that had some kind of a, a quarrel, a fight, division, a split. Maybe we saw leaders that uh, weren't qualified, that were appointed hastily just because they were willing and available, or maybe because they were really good at something. Then we've seen leaders that have disqualified themselves by some grievous sin. And for some of us, we were the targets and victims of the disqualifying acts of certain leaders. God, we need you. This church does not stand by the strength of its leader's flesh by the power of his gifting. The church stands by the grace and power of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, bestowed by the influence of the Holy Spirit that indwells every believer. And so we pray for our leadership and we simply ask God that you would protect us and grow us and keep us humble as a church, Lord. And if we see someone appointed to a position that he or she ought not to be in, we pray that we would handle it well with dignity, with humility, with love, with gentility. That however it's, it's done, even if, uh, if it doesn't go exactly the way that we expected or hoped, but that at the end of it we would be able to say that we did it obediently, and worshipfully before you. We see leaders fail, Lord. We see them fall, and we pray that we would not let it get to that point, that we would encourage them, keep them accountable, and do what we can to help them so that they could rightly help us. And may every leader watch his heart not to fall into conceit and pride, not to lose the love for repentance and confession, but to stay close to you, knowing he doesn't deserve it, he didn't earn it. He should not be there, and yet by your grace and love he is. May every leader lead the church in faith and godliness more than gifting and availability, to be an example in the way that he or she lives so that the members of the church may imitate the leader as the, as the leader imitates Christ. Bless your church. Teach us how to, how to grow. Teach us how to lead. And even if we mess up, Lord, we pray that there would be restoration and healing. We pray all this for Christ's glory in his name. Amen.